This evening, let's turn again to the New Testament and Acts, the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Acts of the Apostles, and we'll look again at chapter 2, but we'll pick up our reading at the end of the chapter, verse 37 through the end. Now, when they, that's the multitude, gathered here for Pentecost in Jerusalem, hearing the disciples, they heard the sermon that was preached. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So, beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we meet together again this afternoon and want to meditate upon not only the day of Pentecost as it unfolded in the early New Testament church, but to make the connection with what transpired there, though there were many miracles that happened on the day of Pentecost. We have the cloven tongues of fire. Uh, The apostles we saw all this morning were speaking a similar or maybe the identical message in different languages so all the people could hear. We hear about a mighty rushing wind. We hear about the boldness of Peter, who only a few weeks before had denied the Lord Jesus. So there were many things that were happening and miracles that were happening on that day, and not the least of which was the Holy Spirit working and convicting 3,000 people and saving them. They were in darkness at the beginning of Pentecost and lost outside of Christ, And when the day closed, there were 3,000 souls added to the church. I don't know if this exceeded the expectation of the apostles, but it's very possible that it did. Now, we know that the disciples were gathered together in expectation of the promise. They had learned in some measure to trust Christ and his words and reflecting back on all that he had taught them. And we're looking now with anticipation to what he would do, perhaps still waiting Uh, for him to set up his kingdom. But whatever the case may have been, this probably exceeded their expectation. So many miracles, many powerful things God was doing. But there's one more. They persevered. It didn't just happen and fizzle and fade and wane away. The reason we're sitting here this afternoon is because God is continuing his work. He is steadfast so that we will be steadfast in what he's called us to do. 
And that's really what I want to look at with you in some way here at the end of this passage that we read together. I'll just read verse 42 again, but there's more to be contained in the verses that follow. But Acts 2.42 says this, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The theme is the New Testament church, with three thoughts. First, the foundation, then their zeal, and third, their practice. Well, we read in the verse just prior to the one we're going to begin considering, verse 41, what was the result of this sermon uh, that Peter and his fellow companion labors had uh, preached this word of repent and be baptized. And we read, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. And that immediately leads to our text. There were those who repented at the hearing of this message on the day of Pentecost, and now all of those And those who are being added daily continued in these things, in these doctrines, as it says here, of the apostles. This is the main emphasis here of the Holy Spirit in this passage. It's the main emphasis of what the New Testament church is really all about. Continuing on in the apostles' doctrine. This seems to be the essential ingredient of this preservation of this early Testament, New Testament church, even till today. Calvin called this the soul of the New Testament church. This was, we could say, uh, the root. Uh, this was necessary in order for the church to really continue. It was that those who had been called out would persevere in the apostles' doctrine. Another way of saying it is they addicted themselves. We hear a lot about addictions today. Forming of habits, people who continue in certain practices that often satisfy internal desires and uh, sinful things likely that give them supposed pleasure. They become addicted through their whole, not only spirit, but in their heart, but in their whole body even. And when we read this word here, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine is a wholehearted, whole person embrace of this teaching of the apostles. This was their spiritual food. This was their life. This is what sustained them day by day, week by week, and month by month. It was as if they were clinging, not to the apostles themselves, not to Peter who had preached the sermon, but they continued in the apostles' doctrine, the truths that the apostles taught. Later, as the New Testament church unfolded, we begin to see people beginning to cling to other things. Sometimes people. Sometimes Churches. You remember Paul had to say to the Corinthians, some of you say uh, you're of Paul. Others of you say you're of Apollos. And others of you say you're of Christ. But he asked this question, are you not all of Christ? His point is this. Without Christ and clinging to him alone, you have nothing. There is nothing Did any man die for you, Paul goes on to say, as it were? Did any man give his life for you, for this truth of this doctrine of the gospel that has come to you? And the answer is obviously, no. And Paul would say, well, then cling to him. And to the Galatians, Paul had to say, oh, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who tricked you? That you would be led astray so quickly that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been set forth and crucified among you. How did that happen? Was Jesus crucified again at the church at Galatia? No. It happened because whoever was sent to the church at Galatia and preaching the gospel 
and setting forth Christ and him crucified for poor sinners, they heard this doctrine, this truth. And Paul says, you have removed your heart, your thoughts centered upon this glorious truth. And so this is a mark of the New Testament church, a steadfast believer who clings to the word, the truth of God. And when it's lively and we are living close to the Lord, there's not so much room from our heart to our mouth to be speaking about other people, about churches, about ministers, even about necessarily the things in this world which we need to talk about to get through this world. But what, what, what ought to be the desire of our heart, as was with this early church, it seems, was Christ. He filled their hearts, their minds, their lives. This was the message that they had heard and they had received and they wanted to hear it again. They wanted to be deepened in its understanding of the truths of the Word of God. Remember, all they had basically was the Old Testament and the exposition the apostles would give by the Holy Spirit's inspiration. And now we have a whole recorded New Testament for us today. So much more depths to, to plumb and so many more truths to, to unpack and to, to have affect us and to, to guide us through life. You remember perhaps the statement of Martin Luther who said, Doctrine is heaven. Uh, Martin Luther was not talking about going to a seminary and uh, just studying somehow truths and doctrines and teachings like you would study a science textbook. But he was talking about having these truths of the Word of God impressed upon and become living truths in our heart that we experience, that we live out of, that encourage us and comfort us and, and correct us. This is what it means to continue, as we read here, steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. And so I ask you, I ask myself a question. From the time you have come to profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's your confession, how has your hunger and desire for the doctrines of the Apostles Fared? Has it increased, grown, deepened? Or has it abated? Maybe, well nigh disappeared. Is it enough to just gather at mealtimes to read his word? Or when you come to church? Or do you hunger like you are hungry for a meal? Uh, you're teenagers, you, you know what it is to wait for mom to get supper ready and on the table. You're hungry. Are you hungry, as this New Testament church was, for the word, the truth, the doctrines of, of God? I remember when the Lord was laboring in my soul in the beginning of spiritual life. And I, I was at university, and there was a lot of things to study for the courses I was taking. And yet, even though I had studied so much perhaps before, and I didn't abate that study, there was still this hunger that superseded all of it in coming to faith in Christ. It was a hunger and a thirst and a diving into the Word of God and the teachings of the Word of God. It didn't hinder the other things that I had to do. And when the Word of God comes and sinks into our hearts with power, we drink it like water. Maybe someone here tonight this afternoon says, but I, I don't have that need as you're expressing. I don't know what that desire is that you are saying. I think you need to ask yourself a question. Why not? You know, if you went eat a couple of meals, we, we, we would be hungry naturally. 
What it's saying to us, if I'm not hungry for the Word of God and the truths the Word of God is presenting to us like food, spiritual food, it certainly raises the question of what is my spiritual life? Where am I? Who am I? Now, it's true also that those who know Christ, who are united to Christ by faith, don't always have a plateau or a a mountaintop experience of desiring and hungering after the Word of God as they may have in the past. And, And this can cause conflict even in their own souls. And yet, those who know Christ are at the root and core of their being, found here in this passage. They continue, they are hungering, they are searching, they are looking, they are longing, when it isn't so lively within their souls that they would be refreshed and revived. That's why we sang a couple of the songs about the church being revived. We have need in our spiritual journeys at times and places to be revived again. And yet at the root of their very being, it is with David that we can say, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation night and day. I long for more desire, for more hunger even. And we don't excuse ourselves by saying, oh, I, I don't have time, I'm too busy, I, I got my family, I've got work, uh, I, I can't understand what I read, and I'm not a reader anyway. All of those are excuses. But if we have a hunger for Christ... We want to know more about him. We're going to go to the place where he's going to feed us. And it's the doctrine, it's the truths of the apostles. And we want to continue on steadfastly in these things. God says in the Old Testament, my people perish because they lack knowledge. Paul said to his spiritual son, Timothy, Till I come, give attendance to reading. Yeah, yeah, public reading in the church, yes, but no doubt private reading and meditation and reflection on these truths as well. He continues to say, Give attendance to exhortation, to doctrine. Meditate on these things. Give yourself wholly, totally to them that your profiting may appear to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing this, you will save both yourself and those that hear you. Fathers, mothers, God has given you great blessings in your children, gifts from his hand. They're loaned to us. When Paul says to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those that hear you, it's as relatable to leaders in the church as it is to leaders in the home. Be faithful and diligent, feeding, nourishing your own soul that you may be an instrument of blessing to your children and grandchildren and in the church. What do we find in the early church of the Bereans when they heard this message of the apostles and their doctrine? They tested these things. They searched the scriptures whether these things were so. And we read that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with readiness of mind, searching the scriptures daily whether these things were so. And then, by Spirit's inspiration, we read, therefore, many of them believed. If we would, as a congregation, desire to see God pour out His Spirit upon us, it will no doubt have these beginnings of what happened here in the early church. We continue steadfastly in the doctrine, in the truth, in the teaching of the Word of God. This doctrine is the whole counsel of God. Death in Adam, life in Christ. How that the Holy Spirit works in us. That if we have come to Christ in saving faith, he will deepen that work. He will expand that work in our hearts. And it often is through a way of suffering. 
And so as we turn to the scriptures, we learn we need to take up our cross and follow him. And in doing so, he gives us the grace to bear that cross after him, depending upon him. Knowing he's not going to destroy us, but sanctify us through this very process of suffering. These are the truths that are communicated to us in the doctrine of the apostles. And we learn, too, about Christ, his person, his work, his state, his natures, all about him and what he has done and accomplished. How he is building his church, he's defending her and preserving his church. How he comes to those who are tossed with tempest and not comforted. And he comes and he says, I will comfort them. I will lead them by a way that they don't know. These are the doctrines the apostles taught and the church continued in steadfastly. Are you a church that is hungering and longing and living the doctrine of the apostles? Christ gathers his church as a local body and he wants to nourish and feed her and be near her that she may be a light upon a hill in the salt of the earth. And if we love the Lord, one of the unmistakable foundations that will be found in our life is this. This clinging to, this hunger for, this dependence upon the doctrine, the truth of the apostles, the gospel of the New Testament. This ought to be evidenced then in the church. It's a touchstone of whether or not we are living as a New Testament church. But this brings us to the second thing we need to look at is their zeal. How, how did they continue in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship? Well, Luke tells us they continued steadfastly, perseveringly. There was an abiding humility about this submitting to the teaching that came to them. And what, what would you say is the cause of this steadfastness, this persevering in this glorious truth that they had now been confronted with on the day of Pentecost that really put them in the place of being sinners in need of the grace of God found alone in Christ? What gave them to persevere in that man-abasing doctrine and God-glorifying doctrine? What was it? It was the same grace that brought them to acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior that gave them to persevere to the very end. The cause, we could say, of this steadfastness in the lives of the New Testament church is rooted in the eternal love of God. I don't know if you noted here, but in the bulletin, this quote from J.C. Ryle, he knew what we were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled, yet he loved us. He knows what will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves us. So what is the reason, the New Testament church, what is the reason you have existed and we are standing here in this moment? It's because of his steadfast perseverance with us. And yet we are called to persevere as these early church members did. This steadfastness, we could say, is a fruit of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His constant intercession, his upholding of the church. Even after this, we know that the Apostle Peter, who stood here on the day of Pentecost and proclaimed this message, used mightily of the Lord, had to be corrected by the Apostle Paul. He was deviating from the understanding of the gospel going also to the Gentiles. Even though he had been called of God to minister to them, he needed to be upheld again by the Lord himself. And who is it that has preserved the church, this church, 
his church throughout the world till today. It's Christ. He is making intercession at the right hand of his Father every moment, even now. The secret of sustaining power for the children of God to be steadfast that we don't finally succumb to temptation or depart into error, who perseveres with us so we do not fall away, who lifts us up when we fall down, is Christ. This is the truth of the Apostles' doctrine. And not only is this truth this steadfastness rooted in the Father's love to sinners and merited by Christ. But as we think of this day of Pentecost, this steadfastness is rooted in the reality that the Spirit of Christ has come to dwell and live in the heart of his people. It's an amazing thing in the Apostles' doctrine to hear that Christ has come, particularly and especially in the New Testament church, to dwell in the hearts of his people. Christ, by his Spirit, is here. Not in a building, so much as we would say he dwells in the heart of his people. He is the internal interceder. Yes, we have an advocate at the right hand of God, the ascended Lord and Savior, but we have an internal advocate who groans with groans unutterable so that we can and we do steadfastly persevere in the apostles' doctrine. And so this continuing fruit and wonder of the day of Pentecost is not only that there were 3,000 people saved, and later on another event of 5,000 souls saved, it is the fact that these continue in the truths that they have experienced, heard, and learned. It's because God is steadfast with you. He is addicted to you with an eternal, everlasting love. And out of that steadfastness, he keeps us, he upholds us, he leads us. And this is why there remains a church to this day. And perhaps there are those who have come to repentance and faith in Christ, and when they hear this call to steadfastness, this perseverance, this pressing forward, this growth in grace and knowledge, they, they would say to, to you, if they were honest, I'm so fickle, I'm so changeable. It's as if I'm not much changed than I was even a year ago. I can't deny what the Lord has done, that he's spoken to my heart and soul through his word. I, I love the teaching of the word of God. I love Christ. But I wish I would walk in his ways more. I wish I would have a mouth open to serve him more. At times, I just long to speak of him more. How can it be this way? No doubt, if you had asked these 3,000, there would have been those who at times in their lives would have said the same. As they learned this path of progressive sanctification in the Christian life, Later was said with the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, the things that I should do, I don't find myself doing, and the things that I, I know I, I shouldn't do, I, I'm doing them. And Lord, help me. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And yet, this stands as a beacon for us to emulate, to seek after, to follow, that we might be like them, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. 
how did they do this? It's even the Apostle Paul. You remember what he said? When I am weak, then I am strong. It's because when Paul recognized his own weakness, he clung to Christ. He turned to Christ. He lived out of Christ. And the same will be true for us. We may not see so much steadfastness and so much faithfulness and consistency in our own lives, but if we flee to Christ in our inconsistencies, in our struggles and in our doubts and fears, He will uphold us. He will keep us. The steadfastness here of the believer is one who is aware of his own weakness and his own infirmity. He's not one who is boasting about on the housetops. I am the strong Christian. I am the one who persevered to the end. No, it's, it's the one who has recognized in me there dwells no good thing. But in dependence upon my faithful Savior, Christ, I can do everything. It's truly the weak one who clings to the vine, Christ, who draws daily from him, the risen Lord, who is truly strong. It's the one who has recognized he can't rely or she can't rely on our own strength, but looks to Christ. Because here is even pictured for us in some respects The life of the true believer is a daily continual conflict. There were many things that came against this early New Testament church, and yet they persevered on. Even in the face of suffering, face of persecution, face of martyrdom, because underneath were the everlasting arms. And so regarding this truth, how did they persevere? They did so steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Because that doctrine, that truth, taught them, and it teaches us. The strength is not found in you and me. It's found in him. And he's willing to give everything that you need and I need. They continued faithfully, steadfastly. We need to apply this same truth to ourselves. And so I ask you, as I did in the first point, are you continuing not only in the apostles' doctrine, but but are we doing this steadfastly, regularly, consistently? Apply this standard, if you will, to your life. What, What would you think Or what would you do if, when you get into your car, four out of six times it starts? Would you do anything different? Would you take it to the mechanic? What if your newspaper delivery boy delivered your newspaper three out of seven days? Or or what would you do if you have an upright freezer and it works most of the time, but every so often, a couple of days, it doesn't. Now, apply that standard to what is being set before us here. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. Are we addicting ourselves and so persevering in the truths of God's Word as if our life depended upon it? Or do we perhaps neglect the reading of the word? The apostles' doctrine. Neglect the coming to the worship services of the fellowship of the saints together. Or the opportunities that God gives us to be able to learn and to be taught of the things of God. Those two things cannot be consistently held together to be a New Testament church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, 
in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That brings us to the third thing here briefly this afternoon that we need to look at as well. This is their practice. Not only was there a foundation, the apostles' doctrine, not only was there a zeal of steadfastness that Christ, yes, holding to them, but they persevered in the study of the word and the receiving of the promises and the calling of God in their life and seeking to do it. But they did so here, we see, with their practice. They continued in fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers, so that the fear of them came upon every soul. You remember in the early church, not a few chapters later, uh, you have Ananias and Sapphira who are attached to the church and they, they sell their property, they keep part of it to themselves, and, and both of them come to the apostles and they both die. And we read, fear came on all the people. The same word here. And so the reality is that when, when the world and when those who were in the early New Testament church were taking heed to the doctrines and in fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, fear, that kind of fear, came upon all these souls. Not a slavish fear, but an awe of the glory of God. Is that the kind of awe that we have as we come together in in a New Testament church? When we're able to meet not only in the church for worship services, but when when we go to each other's houses and we visit each other, here they were meeting from house to house. They continued daily, if you look in verse 46, one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. No, they weren't having the Lord's Supper from house to house. They were fellowshipping together in their homes. And what do you think they were talking about? as they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They weren't talking about what conflicts were occurring in Ukraine, I suspect, if there were such things then. They were talking about what the Lord was doing. They were talking about who Christ was, what he had come to do, how he was a fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, how Christ was with his church, how Christ was building his church, and they were addicting themselves to this truth of the glorious gospel of Christ. When we gather together, I'm just not talking to you, I'm talking to me. When we gather together, is Christ filling our hearts and our minds to such an extent that it's an overflow of what we've been thinking, what we've been considering in the days that are behind us? Is there an openness and and, and frankness of which we are able to speak to one another about the things of Christ? Do you know this work of Christ by His Spirit in your own heart so that as your heart is inflamed with the glory of Christ and who He is, you you can't but speak of Him. He's everything to you. Or is it a burden for us to force ourselves to say something to someone else about Christ? I'm not minimizing what Christ may have done in our lives, if that be the case, but we should ask ourselves why. Is it because we haven't addicted ourselves and are continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine that when we gather together, even from house to house, in this, what we call, fellowship, it's not rooted and grounded and focused on Christ. And parents, as we speak to our children, do we speak to them about Christ? Who He is, what He's done for us, what He will do for them.
I once read of a little quiet man who didn't always say too much. But he was a fruit peddler. And every day he had passed by the door of a man who told this story. And the man who told this story said one day he found this little notebook where the peddler had just sat on his doorstep. And he looked in this little notebook of the fruit peddler and he saw that at the beginning page there was just some handwriting. And it said on the first page of the book, for his body's sake, which is the church. And then he looked through a few more pages and he saw a couple of other entries, various scripture, one that said, so-and-so was absent from Bible school last Sunday and I went to visit him. I asked Mrs. So-and-so about their sick baby and I left some fruit for the blind lady. I spoke a cheering word to the cripple. I invited the new family who, brought, who bought fruit yesterday to come to church. Well, the next day the fruit peddler came by the same way again. And this man who had found the book gave it to him. And he said, I found this yesterday. I think it's yours. He said, why, yes, it is mine. Thank you. And the man said, oh, I did take the liberty to read parts of it. And I was quite surprised at what you're doing. Oh, said the old peddler, it has nothing to do with my business. Uh, My motive and reason for doing what you find on every page is found there on the very first page, for his body's sake, which is the church. Are we doing what we do and what they did here in the early New Testament church for the body's sake? Read in Paul's letters about how he defines and he unpacks what the body, the church, ought to look like. How that each one of you have been given gifts by the same Spirit who we're thinking about here on the day of Pentecost, poured out upon his church. Everyone in the church has been given gifts or a gift in particular. What is yours? Have you paused and prayed and considered what gift God has given to you? to be used for the church. Because that's why he gives his gifts. And if one member or several members aren't using the gifts, who's hindered by that? The church, the body. So each one of us as member of the church, even the most small and insignificant, that's what Paul is saying, even the most insignificant member is of such great value and importance to the church. Do we recognize that? That's the apostles' teaching. Are we pressing on and persevering in light of this foundational truth with zeal that this becomes our practice? That we serve one another. When was the last time that we washed someone's feet? I'm not speaking literally. I am speaking from our heart that we have borne and carried and served another member of the body of Christ for his sake. What does the Apostle James say? What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man says he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked, destitute of daily food, and one of you say, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give them the things that they are needful for the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it does not have works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. That's what here Luke is recording about the fellowship of the early New Testament church. Sharing. You read here that they had all things in common. We're not talking about communism here, but we're talking about an understanding of a person in need and the church walks alongside, whether that be financial or other needs and suffering in any kind of way, that we minister to one another as Christ to another member of the body. They loved one another. 
Notice this idea of fellowship throughout the New Testament apostles. 1 Corinthians 1. You were called to the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. That first of all. The favor of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship, John says, 1 John 1, 7, with one another. How will the church be known in our world today? How we fellowship, genuinely love one another. And it's not talking about God. It's talking in relation to how we know God. How we love God. And how we together serve and worship our God. This is the radical idea of this New Testament church. This participation in a common unity of which we looked at this morning, not only in word, but in practice. We have fellowship with God because we're made partakers, Peter says, of the divine nature. We have fellowship with the Son of God because He now, by His Spirit, lives in us. And as we suffer, He suffers. I say that because when Stephen was being stoned, Christ, as it were, stands in recognition. And when He says to the Apostle Paul, you are persecuting me, not simply the church. And so because he dwells in the church, we have fellowship with one another. We speak together of the Lord Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. When you come together around the communion table, what is it but the communion of the body of Christ? The breaking of the bread is a reminder that we are of one loaf, of one body, that we belong together. We ought to nourish also and fellowship with one another. And we do that also in prayer. This was in every aspect of their lives. Many times we think of the church and we think of the fellowship and we think of the times we gather on Sunday. and Those all are important. But this New Testament church, even though they no doubt were scattered abroad, they were participating in this unity and in this fellowship and in this oneness each and every day. Praying for one another, meeting together with one another, urging one another on in holiness, in obedience to the Lord. Religion isn't only meant for Sunday. Fellowship isn't only meant when we can get together and give each other a pat on the back on the Lord's Day. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. What did they do? Praised God. And having favor with all the people. They were intermingling with all the people. They were bearing testimony to the cause of Christ. And the result? The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. When we seek to emulate and to follow this New Testament pattern of the church, in the unity we have heard today, and we ground our lives and our hearts on the apostles' doctrine, steadfastly persevering on, and we gather for fellowship, the Lord will bring about His purpose and His work. Oh, we are still weak, frail members, individual members. And I love this with Spurgeon. You know, he has a characteristic way of getting to the point. Well, there came a man to him once and asked him if his church was a pure church. And Spurgeon began to tell him that he didn't know about his own church, whether he could say that. He said 
He knew that many truly Christian people were in it. There's probably a Judas there, he said. There might be some deceivers and, and idolaters and those who walk unruly, as it seemed to be the case in the church at Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and Thessalonica and others. And after all of this, Spurgeon said to him, No, I, I don't think that our church is the one you're looking for. And furthermore, I don't, I don't think even such a church exists. And in his parting words, Spurgeon said to him, By the way, if you should happen to find such a church, I beg you not to join it, for you will spoil the whole thing. We don't belong to a perfect church. The New Testament church wasn't perfect. That's not what I'm saying, what this church was. But this church, as we read of it, by inspiration of the Spirit, was one who steadfastly clung and hungered after the apostles' doctrine with zeal. And it was evident in the practice. Dear friends, that's my prayer for us. Even in the New Testament church, so many thousands of years later, to live this way, to look like this church, to serve one another and to serve those in our communities as Christ. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, we confess this afternoon that we come short of our calling as the church in our words, in our practice, even in our zeal. But do continue to bear with our weakness and infirmities, covering it in your blood, and do stir up our hearts that we may be filled with gratitude and with this praising of God as the early New Testament church did, that we may see that thou art adding daily to the church such as should be saved. And so help us to be faithful in our calling, in our tasks, in our commission that has been given to us, and that we may do so relying upon your steadfastness with us. And so bless us now, today, this week, and each new day to come. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.